Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Jared Adadero. I write letters to you in my head every day. Sometimes they're to who you used to be. Other times they're to who I imagine you'd be now. I had to find a way to take the pain and turn it into something. I found that for a split second, I could get myself unstuck from all the longing and instead sink deep into moments when I still had you. I can close my eyes and breathe in the sticky sweet pine, the smell of campfire still lingering on your coat, the mountains where your blood sunk into the ground, and now my blood, our blood, swims in a sea of tree roots like knotted rope. I stay until it makes me dizzy. There are parts that remain unfinished forever, unfair and unknowing, gnawing away at the corners of myself only few could understand. A particular grief like a river that never freezes, a current too strong for the burning to pause. Every minute you've been gone, accounted for, and not one to spare for a slip of the mind. No forgetting is gentle, but these are the details that make remembering so sweet. Alan Adadero woke up on the morning of Saturday, October 2nd, 1999, the same way he had every Saturday morning for the last three years. To the sound of his son, Jared, already filled to the brim with boundless energy. How this kid could stay up until nearly midnight watching Godzilla and then be ready to start the next day at the crack of dawn never failed to amuse him. Okay, I'm up, I'm up, he laughed in response to Jared's pleas. It wasn't every day that they woke up in a cabin in the mountains. This was vacation mode, and for Jared, that meant nonstop adventures. It had been just the three of them for some time now. Jared was three, Jocelyn was six. Alan considered himself more than blessed. He couldn't ask for better kids. They were lively and happy, but also well-mannered and thoughtful. If they were any reflection of his parenting, he couldn't help but feel that maybe the best he could do wasn't so bad after all. These trips away from the hustle and bustle were among the many things he felt grateful to provide them. He loved the richness of this mountain life, and what glimpses of it that they could share together. He wanted to give them memories they could hold on to forever. Alan had always felt a strong connection to nature like it was a conduit in which he could feel and hear God, and he wanted his children to feel the power of it too. He'd purchased this resort about a year and a half ago with his twin brother Arlen. It was only a couple hours' drive away from their home in Denver, nestled between the Poudre River and Colorado Rocky Mountains, but it felt like they were in a different world. Their lives could become quiet and spontaneous, rearranging their normal routine of school and work into slow mornings together with coffee and hot chocolate, cartoons, and nature walks. That weekend, a group that was part of the Denver's Christian Singles Association was holding a retreat at the resort. They'd had a couple different retreats there just that summer. There'd been fishing and camping, cooking and eating together, beautiful church services. There were some familiar faces returning as well as brand new ones. This time, Alan was busy with winterizing the resort in preparation for the colder months. He didn't really have much time to spare for keeping up after a group, so he agreed to give them the weekend for free, as long as they helped out with chores and cleaned up after themselves. And having so many familiar adults around was an added bonus, as most of the weekend's activities were kid-friendly. It was around 9am when Jocelyn came running up to him, half panting and excited, asking if she could go on a hike with everyone. 
Both kids had gone to Janet's cabin after breakfast. Alan didn't trust a lot of people with his children, but Janet was at the top of his list. About 30 seconds later, Jared appeared and followed suit. Alan wasn't exactly sure who everyone was, but eventually around a dozen people were gathered in front of the resort store, planning out which trail to tackle. The resort is surrounded by over 32 miles among nine separate trails, all holding unique gems like elevated vistas, stream crossings, and wildlife sightings. There was a fish hatchery along one of the trails, and Janet assured Alan it'd be no trouble at all to have the kids tag along. With coaxing, he agreed. The two of them got into his white Chevy Blazer with a few of the other adults and buckled their seats. Alan got them both to roll the windows down and gave them each a kiss goodbye on the cheek. Be careful and listen to Janet. Have fun. I love you. The group had originally planned to hike at Pooter Falls, but when they got there, they realized there were no hiking trails in the immediate area. They drove a bit further up the road, around 16 miles from the resort, the trailhead of the Big South Trail. It's a perfect outing for the day, spanning over 11 miles and peppered with ideal spots for fishing and vistas. Over a thousand square miles of pure wilderness, God's country as far as the eye can see. Within the first mile or so of the hike, the adults naturally split into a faster group and a slower group. Jared and Jocelyn were in the slower group at first, until Jared decided to run up ahead and walk with the quicker adults. It's unclear how much space was between the two groups, enough at least that the leading group was out of sight of the slower group. Eventually, Jared also passed the quicker group as well, darting in and out of sight between tree trunks, whacking them with a stick he'd found a few hundred feet ago. He climbed and ran, paying no mind to his surroundings. Eventually, he came to a river and began hitting rocks along its steady stream. Across from him were two men with their lines in the water waiting for a bite. "'Are there bears here?' he shouted over to them. "'Yes, but I've never seen one,' one of the men yelled back. And with that, Jared continued onward, waving his stick around in the air with aimless determination. It was at least a few miles into the trail when the two groups finally connected again. Eleven adults and one child. Jocelyn had stayed by Janet's side. But where was Jared? Both groups had assumed he'd been with the other. Everyone immediately began yelling Jared's name while walking further up the trail. How far could a three-year-old have gotten anyway? But after a good while of looking and no sight of Jared, panic started setting in. If he'd walked off the trail and too far into the woods, this could get bad quickly. Back at the resort, Alan was finishing up some work on the hot tub. He couldn't wait until that was done. That was going to be a luxury at its finest after a long day of repairs. It was around 2 p.m. when he decided to go back into his cabin apartment that was attached to the resort store and take a break. He'd been working nonstop all day, and since everyone was gone, the place was pretty quiet. When you have a six and a three-year-old, the word nap isn't even in your vocabulary, so he figured he'd unwind until the kids got back. He wondered what to make for dinner. Maybe they could build a fire. Jared would love that. It felt like his eyes had only been closed for a moment when he heard some sort of commotion going on in the store. After a minute without knocking, a woman who'd gone on the hike came into the apartment and started nervously looking around for something. Eventually, their eyes met and Alan could tell she was clearly frustrated in a panicked way. Alan, everything is okay, but Jared had a little problem. He rose to his feet immediately. What do you mean? What happened? She stared nervously, and Alan continued. Did he fall? Nothing. Did he break his arm? Nothing. Did he cut himself or something? And then she said one of the strangest sentences he'd ever heard before. No, 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 he's okay. We just can't find him. You just can't find him. If he was lost, how did they know he was okay? 
Alan quickly threw on his jacket, gathering his phone and keys, talking out loud to Jared as if he was in the room. Hold on, Jared. Daddy's coming to get you. Things only got worse when she told Alan they'd changed their minds on the hike. The trailhead was nearly a 30-minute drive away. What? Why? You guys didn't even tell me you were going that far. Alan let out a frustrated sigh. On his way out, the resort manager Melvin handed Alan a radio so they could communicate while he was on the trail. He couldn't get himself through the door and into his car fast enough. Each second moved like molasses, and he felt hyper-aware of every detail. He knew he was speeding, but the numbers were a blur. He pounded on his chest with his fist, hot tears streaming down his face. At one point, he registered a noise and then realized it was his own screaming. Alone in the blazer, he could surrender to his fear. Once he got to the trailhead, there would be no time to waste for emotions. He needed to keep his wits about him and find Jared before the sun went down. He couldn't have gotten that far. Maybe he was playing some awful game of hide-and-seek or scared that the yelling adults meant that he was in trouble. Jocelyn and Janet were still on the trail and Alan was partly comforted at the thought of seeing her soon. The urge to hold her in his arms was almost unbearable. He pictured the last moment he'd seen Jared, wearing his green and beige fleece coat, his blue pants, his white and gray running shoes. Never in his wildest nightmares did he ever think he'd be one of those parents who'd have to recite those details in his head for a reason like this. As he drove down the winding roads, he thought about how he hadn't even wanted to come up to the mountains this weekend in the first place. Alan didn't know what it was about the resort, but it was like a bad luck streak had cursed every trip for them. The first time they'd driven to the mountain, after fighting Denver traffic and completing the 23-mile climbing road through Poudre Cannon that always made Alan nervous, a rock had cracked his windshield and the whole thing had needed to be replaced. And the second time, they'd returned home just before midnight, all three of them utterly exhausted, only for him to realize he'd forgotten his keys back at the resort. Third time takes all, kept repeating in his head. How could 11 adults lose a three-year-old? How the hell was it possible that nobody was looking out for him or even making an extra effort to keep an eye on him in the first place? Alan shook his head as if to shake the anger off of him. Now was the time to halt the emotions and stay focused. His boy needed him. When he arrived at the trailhead, a few people who'd gone on the hike were standing around. He'd asked them where his daughter was, but they hadn't seen her. Jocelyn and Janet must still be up on the trail looking for Jared. He thought he'd feel better when he got here, but once Alan started on the trail, his overwhelm would only worsen. It was more complicated than he expected. It felt big. It felt like the whole world was in front of him covered in trees as far as the eye could see. He kept yelling for Jared, Hey little man, daddy's here! Alan bellowed every nickname he used for his son into the woods, trying to maintain composure. He had really believed that just like every single time before, when he called his name, Jared would come running. Within a hundred feet, what was once a vast expanse of beauty and peace was now dark and foreboding. He felt sick thinking about Jared out here alone in this for even one second. The static of his radio broke his train of thought. It was Melvin, saying they needed some of Jared's clothing for search dogs to have his scent. Even though he'd initially told him there was probably no need to call for an official search crew, Alan was relieved that Melvin had done so anyway. The local deputy, Jose Romero, was on his way, along with reinforcements. The sun would go down soon, and the temperature would lower. There was no time to waste. There had been a part of him hoping that this was just a small mishap, maybe a verbal slap on the wrist for someone, but in this moment, reality set in. Jared wasn't just lost. He was missing. Just as he arrives at the trailhead, Alan immediately spots Janet. But she's alone. She'd taken Jocelyn back to the resort in the hopes that Jared had been found. 
This confused Alan because the hikers had told him that she and Jocelyn were still on the trail. She was crying and apologizing over and over. Alan could see the fear in her eyes, and her guilt was palpable. The deputy asked if she could take a seat in the front of his car for a quick interview about what happened. The last time she'd seen Jared, he was walking behind two men and another woman that was part of the singles group, and she mentioned two fishermen who also shared the trail with them for some time. They were behind Jared and in front of the other singles from their group. Then Janet, Jocelyn, and behind them, more of the slower group. Everyone was just sort of scattered based on their walking speed. Once the quicker group turned a corner, Janet never caught up with them and stayed back with the slower group. Some of the adults had even gone off the trail at one point, assuming the children would remain walking with the others in the group. Alan was pacing, biting his lip, trying not to holler at the sky. How could more than a dozen pair of eyes lose sight of the most important thing in the world to him? Jose assured Alan that this stuff was almost always resolved within 24 hours. The best thing he could do is let search and rescue do their jobs and trust their training. Even though Alan felt better just being where Jared was, he headed back to the resort knowing Jocelyn would be waiting. She ran to him and her tiny body in his arms felt electric. He was both overcome with comfort and despair, so happy to finally have his daughter close to him, but so broken to be two of three. Other interviews would be conducted as well. Kim, Nancy, and Anthony were leading the group. Kim said that the last time she saw Jared, he was ahead of them, and she told him not to go too far. He said okay, and then she lost sight of him. When they hadn't run into him again after almost 20 minutes, they began stopping and listening for sounds, concerned. Within 30 minutes, they started back towards the trailhead, asking other people on their way if they'd seen Jared. Nobody had. Anthony told the officer that they'd started on the trail at approximately 10.40 a.m. and last saw Jared between 11.20 and 11.30 a.m. They turned back around by 12.50, arrived at the trailhead around 1.40, and left to notify Alan. Nancy had the same story, noting that she felt it was important for them to keep a close eye on Jared as he ran off in front of them, interested in the two fishermen who by then had passed the front of the group. Once Kim yelled out to him not to go too far, she'd felt more at ease, and the three adults went back to their conversation, not paying attention to exactly where Jared ran off to. The two fishermen, Nolan and Arthur, were interviewed extensively by the search and rescue team, as it seems they were the last to see Jared. They were also interviewed by the investigating deputy as well, and told him Jared had been in front of them. They forked off the trail to the river, estimating that the group Jared was with was around 5 to 10 minutes behind them. After all of the most crucial people were interviewed, the rest of the hikers would be questioned back at the resort. Some people who lagged behind in the slower group didn't even see Jocelyn or Jared on the hike. They were just aware that there were two kids with them. Some of the hikers, including Janet, will say that they heard a scream or a cry shortly after Jared went missing, but there were mixed interpretations of the emotion behind it. One of the adults that had seen Jared zooming by noted he seemed so determined and sure that he'd assumed Jared knew where he was going and that Janet knew what he was doing. But the truth was that nobody knew what anybody was doing. One hiker had noted that their choice being so spur of the moment, the hike itself was very disorganized. Nobody knew the length of the hike or even the type of terrain to expect. Everybody just sort of walked where they wanted to, at their own speed, paying no mind, and taking it easy. One might assume that 11 adults would be more than adequate to make sure that two children stay safe and within sight. But as each person was interviewed, it seems that what was happening wasn't so much ill intent or outright neglect, but rather the socio-psychological phenomenon known as diffusion of responsibility. 
It's when a person is less likely to take action in a group of people, often assuming that either others are responsible for taking action or already have. It's something that exists in almost all groups to varying degrees, and it manifests differently depending on the situation. For instance, a group project at work or school can display elements of diffusion of responsibility, as its members may feel a decreased sense of obligation to accomplish a task, since the responsibility is assumed to be shared. Each adult on the hike felt a degree of this, slicing their attention and leaving gaps between them, making room for error as they went. There was no sense of threat or danger, and so much time passed before anybody realized what had been shaped by their inaction. Janet assumed the faster hikers would keep an eye on Jared. The faster hikers assumed he wouldn't go far, and like others, that Janet somehow had it managed, even though she was hiking with the slower group behind them. The fishermen assumed the group of adults he was with knew what he was doing as he ran off ahead. Had they set out clear rules or boundaries, maybe delegated specific responsibilities to each other, created a working system through communication, then maybe everyone would have had an increased sense of accountability on the trail. But unfortunately, without even realizing it, everyone had let Jared slip through their fingers and out of sight, because nobody felt like it was their job to say or do anything. Alan realized that he wasn't the only person who had to be notified of what was happening. He slipped away into the bathroom, wanting to keep private the emotional state the phone calls would put him in. First, he called his mother. As soon as he heard the sound of her voice through the receiver, he was a child again, safe to be terrified, and for a brief moment he let himself cry to her. He called his brother, who was on a trip with his wife in San Diego. His nephew assured him he'd get in touch with his parents as soon as he could. Alan stared at the phone while his exhales trembled. The most dreaded call of all was to Angie. Jared's mother. She'd moved to San Diego around the same time he'd located from Imperial Valley to Colorado. Both he and Arlen have their masters in education, and being a teacher in Littleton, Colorado was about as different as you get from California. He hadn't actually been planning to call her during the weekend, so he didn't even have her phone number on him. He called her mother first, also relaying the news for one more painful round, and then finally connected with Angie. She would make plans to be at the resort soon. A call to his father would bookend the phone tree, and Alan was grateful. He just couldn't bear to hear the reaction to the news one more time. He was barely keeping it together. But he had to. For Jocelyn. For Jared. He wasn't sure what to do with himself, feeling useless at the resort, so he headed back to the trailhead. The sergeant in charge said they'd have a helicopter in the air by morning if he wasn't found. But he would be. He had to be. This whole silly thing was about to blow over. As the sun rose, a sleepless Alan felt a slight relief. It was too difficult imagining Jared alone and cold in the dark by himself. He hoped that his son was also relieved to see the night sky break with color and dissipate into a bright pale blue. He had no appetite, and his coffee was almost rancid, each drop hitting his empty stomach like a brick. Jared's name was in the local paper under the headline. The article brought him to tears. The ebb and flow of reality flickered like an old light bulb. Instead of preparing breakfast for his two children, he didn't know what to do. Every peaceful ritual of his mornings that he'd taken for granted was marked with Jared's absence. But he still had a child, here, who needed him too. He was concerned with how Jocelyn was handling all of this, and his plan for the day was to try to keep her happily distracted with activities. He wanted to carry as much of this worry and pain for her as possible. During one of their conversations, Jocelyn will mention that Janet took a nap on the trail during their walk, and she'd dozed off a little too. When they woke up, Jared was gone. Janet says that at no point did she stop to sleep during their hike, 
and one could argue that it hadn't even been long enough to exhaust a person to that extent. They'd only been a few miles into the trail. To this day, Jocelyn doesn't really remember many details of the event, save for a few things during the search itself. And she doesn't really remember any details she shared with her father as a child, like Janet taking a nap. Jared's missing was an event that so many people were talking about and would continue to talk about. As a young child, it would be difficult to try and decipher what you remember versus what you think you remember based off what everyone else is saying. And childhood trauma and memory loss can often go hand in hand as the brain's way of coping with an event. The brain responds differently to traumatic events and can process memories differently as well. During a traumatic event, the parts of the brain that process emotions, store memory, and regulate behavior are affected. Impaired memory or childhood amnesia doesn't mean that the individual isn't affected by the trauma. It still intertwines itself into the very fabric of their history and affects how they see the world. Jocelyn being unable to recall details of her brother's disappearance shows how it has affected her so deeply that her body carries it in places she can't access. Jocelyn would also not remember the helicopter that flew over their heads that morning as they stood in front of the resort store. At 8.17 a.m., it was already heading towards the trail, and a new jolt of electric hope made its way through Alan's veins. Hang in there, Jared. They're coming to get you, he yelled towards the sky. The retreat weekend for the Christian singles group was coming to a close, and every person was feeling it. People spoke softly, moved quietly. Everyone felt guilty. The resort took on a somber tone, no laughter or playfulness. Nobody was looking for love, they were just looking for hope. The much-anticipated church service to wrap up the weekend had taken on a heavier tone. It would now be a prayer service for Jared. People gathered together in the back room of the resort. Everyone from the hike was there, filling the room with a loud silence. And after some coaxing, Janet came out of her room and attended the service as well. She was drowning in guilt, and she felt like everyone hated her. She wouldn't blame them if they did. Even though there had been plenty of adults around who also should have been keeping an eye on the children, it had been her they'd asked to go with, and her who had promised to watch them specifically to Alan, and she couldn't let herself forget that. Alan didn't go to her when she came in, instead letting the others console her. He wasn't angry, quite the opposite. It was almost as if he knew that if he comforted her, it would make her feel worse. The tangible combination of her consuming guilt and his overwhelming loss wasn't something either of them could handle right now. After the service, everyone who had filled the resort with laughter and noise, movement and activity began packing up to leave and return to their lives. The weekend was over, and whether Jared was missing or not, life got to go on for everyone else. It felt strange how the world could remain completely untouched to others after such a catastrophic event. Thankfully, Alan wouldn't have to be alone for very long. Behind the scenes, hundreds of miles away, family members were rearranging their lives so that they could come support him. Arlen and his wife Robin immediately booked flights from San Diego to Denver and would arrive the next day. Alan's mother and his aunt Katie would also go with them. A victim's advocate named Susan came to the resort and suggested to Alan that turning to the press would only work in his favor. There was plenty of media on the mountain that wanted interviews, and getting Jared's face out there for everyone to see would be good. Alan agreed, but only if they'd all come at once, at 7 p.m. He wouldn't have it in himself to do much more than that. His emotional state, combined with the lack of sleep and food, it was taking everything in him not to break, and he certainly didn't want to have that happen on national television. It wasn't that he was embarrassed, so much that he felt the need to be strong, for Jocelyn, for himself, and most importantly, God forbid, if Jared was somewhere out there watching, for his son. 
Luckily, Alan found the reporters to be gentle and apologetic, making it just a little easier to put his grief on display for all to see. Alan called the principal at his new teaching job in Littleton to let him know what was going on. Days later, to his surprise, the principal would visit the mountain to offer support. In the midst of the worst pain he'd ever felt, he was humbled by the softer sides of humanity. During a conversation to catch up on details with the head sergeant of the search, Alan received a call from a woman who wanted to offer her services, free of charge, as she owned certified Colorado search dogs. Alan could overhear the phone conversation between the lady and the sergeant, basically a thanks, if we need you, we'll call you, which confused Alan. He didn't think that the search and rescue team weren't equipped, but wouldn't more hands on deck be the best thing they could do? Alan wanted as many people as possible in the forest looking for his son, and he couldn't understand why this woman was being turned away. Since Jared had gone missing, the police were treating the trail more like a crime scene than a recovery mission, even though there was no evidence of foul play. But Alan wasn't a sergeant, so he stifled his own frustrations, checked his ego, and assured himself that these professionals had worlds of knowledge in these types of situations. And it's true that law enforcement can sometimes be cautious about rallying civilians for their own safety and protection, but it still seems a missed opportunity. Alan wouldn't be totally alone. A few people stayed back at the resort, including his good friend Brenda, who would also become a media spokesperson of sorts for Alan when he just couldn't muster the energy. Nobody could comprehend the strength it was taking him just to hold himself upright every single moment, to not fall down to his knees in despair. The fact that Jared was missing burned beneath his skin every single second, but saying the words out loud was almost too much for him to bear. Even though it was nearing the 24-hour mark, there was something in him that still didn't want to give life to the idea that Jared was actually missing. This whole thing would blow over, and there was no point in wasting time breathing life into theories that the media was already spinning. Jared was just lost, and they would find him. The Huey UH-1N helicopter they saw was from F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming, about a 100-mile drive from the resort, and it was headed first to an airport to refuel. One member from the search and rescue team named Mark Sheets, along with four members of the Air Force, would span over areas of the trail, trying to spot any sign of Jared. Even though flying higher up would give them the best aerial view, they decided that flying as low to the treetops as possible would be better. Jared would be more likely to see the helicopter, or at least hear it. But soon into the flight, it was apparent that the helicopter was struggling with the fuel load, along with the mountain's conditions. We need altitude, Mark panicked over the intercom. He heard the co-pilot say, I know, but I can't. We're going in. And Mark, the only one not in a seat, sitting on the floor by the open door, braced for impact as best he could. He saw them spin downward as the propellers were gripping the treetops and pieces of the helicopter fell to the forest floor. He tried to close the door, but a severed tree limb thrust through the open space and right into the Air Force doctor on board, fracturing his eye socket. It felt like both hours and seconds before the entire thing was over, and they collided with the side of the mountain. Immediately, everyone tried to gather their wits and evacuate. One of the engines was still going, and the helicopter could blow up at any second. When his friend Leanne called him at the resort with the sound of excitement and panic in her voice, Alan immediately thought it was Jared. They'd found him. But instead, she asked if they'd heard any news because she'd just seen an ambulance and a police car race by her house towards the direction of the search. Angie had made her way back to the resort. She'd just left with Jocelyn to get her a coloring book at a nearby store. After he hung up the phone, she ran over to Alan saying, you're never going to believe what I just heard. The entire area was lit up with the shock at the news that the very helicopter they'd seen that morning, the one that was supposed to be out there rescuing Jared, was now in need of rescue themselves. 
A mix of emotions came flooding over Alan. Disbelief, worry, grief. These innocent people had been out there, looking for his son, and now tragedy had made its way into their lives, too. He was also upset and confused. Why hadn't he been notified? It seemed like the entire population of locals had known before he did. Eventually, an operator at the sheriff's office confirmed it to him, well over an hour after it happened. The search for his son had turned into an evacuation that had nothing to do with Jared, and nobody seemed to think it was important that he know. He just felt helpless, grasping for any ounce of control or even just hope. By 6 p.m., the crash site had been secured and all five passengers aboard were successfully evacuated and taken to the hospital, three by air and two by ground. Two sustained significant injuries, and luckily all five survived. Alan was warned that at some point the search for Jared would be put on hold to retrieve the helicopter and then they could return to the original mission, but they had lost an entire day. Suddenly, finding Jared felt even further out of reach. An insurmountable despair came over Alan as he tried to process the reality of another long night without his son. Monday morning came, feeling even emptier than the day before. Alan was barely surviving without his son, and a part of him wanted to give in. The sweet forgetting of sleep, of which he was barely getting any, made it even worse when he would wake up and remember all over again what had happened, that Jared was missing. The absence of his energy created a silence that was deafening. He gathered himself emotionally and got his mind right. Jared was a tough little guy, and Alan would be tough for him right back. Obviously, Alan had never been through anything like this before, but there were already so many instances where the actions of the sheriff's department didn't make total sense to him. By 10 a.m., members of the media were back at the resort again, where one of them informed Alan that the sheriff had called a press conference for that afternoon, and he asked him what he thought it was about. It just seemed like something that would have been run by the family first. Other than repeatedly being the last to know about major things in the search for his son, he also grappled with why they were being so strict about who could go on the trail and search. Even his own family members, who had flown in to help, were turned away at the trailhead. Alan's stomach clenched as he wondered if maybe the sheriff had news about a possible abduction or foul play. It wasn't something that Alan wanted to even think about because it opened a whole new world of nightmarish possibilities. But he couldn't stop remembering how everyone had been so sure that Janet and Jocelyn were still up on the trail, when in fact Janet had returned her to the resort. And nobody could be 100% certain how many people had even been on the trail that day. If Jared had been taken, he could be with anyone right now, anywhere. It felt too big, like the entire sky was crushing down on Alan's chest. Shortly after, Susan showed up with an offer for Angie and Jocelyn to spend their days on the mountain and then stay with her in the evenings. She had a daughter too, which would be good for Jocelyn and it would help keep them away from the chaos and media at the resort. Alan figured that would be best and his family members were arriving later that day, so he wouldn't be alone. And more disappointment would be felt by everyone later, when the press conference wouldn't hold any new information. Alan appeased the media with more b-roll clips of him and his daughter and family. He was trying to do his best, giving them the cinematic footage they wanted. He understood this part much more intimately now than just watching it play out on the 6 o'clock news. There would be clips of him and Jocelyn, Alan appearing peacefully morose, but inside, he'd been screaming. Nothing about his outer appearance accurately portrayed the desperation he was feeling, walking around half of a hole. The daylight of Tuesday morning felt ominous. This meant that Jared had spent three nights outside, all alone in the cold. Alan felt a knot of guilt twist in his belly with every warm sip of his coffee. 
his chilly hands wrapped around his mug. He'd trade places with his son in a second, he thought, just to have his two little hands safe and warm. When the body is exposed to cold temperatures for long periods of time, it loses heat faster than it can produce, causing a state of hypothermia. Children can reach a dangerously low body temperature much faster than adults. Mild, moderate, and severe are the first three stages. It can vary, but the average body temperature of a child is around 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Anything lower than 96.6 degrees Fahrenheit is considered moderate hypothermia, and below 89.6, severe hypothermia. Shivering and red-cold skin are usually the first signs at the body's attempt to generate more heat. Other symptoms would also include confusion, slurred speech, lack of coordination, slow, shallow breathing, and eventually loss of consciousness. But even then, there's still a real possibility of survival. The fourth stage of hypothermia is apparent death, meaning the person may not respond, seemingly having no signs of life. But despite the appearance of death, resuscitation could still be successful. Once he was found, Jared would require advanced life support care services beginning immediately at the scene. The media's coverage of Jared would also give way to other theories. The public would call in tips. One couple claimed to see him in a McDonald's in Florida. A hiker spotted him in another national park about 500 miles from where he disappeared. However unfounded, a lot of the time police will still feel the need to look into leads and make sure they hold no ground. But the sheriff's office was so adamant that Jared was still on the mountain, they deemed all too pointless to look into. Psychics, too, would claim to have visions of Jared in vague locations, underneath a tree, near some rocks. Alan would have loved to look underneath every single tree, beneath every rock, between every canyon. But still, they were told it was best to just let the professional searchers do their job. At one point, they were even told that there was a chance of them being arrested if they were up there. But Alan, his brother Arlen, and their mother weren't budging today. There was no logical reason as to why they needed to guard the trail like a crime scene. Alan was looking for his son today. He wanted to see what was being done. He wanted to know every single thing that he could. And more than anything, he wanted to be where Jared was. So they continued to ask until finally, one of the deputies said it looked like they'd be allowed to walk the trail that afternoon. Joined by the sergeant and four other search and rescue members, Alan couldn't understand how 11 adults had let Jared slip through their fingers. Sure, three-year-olds are a lot to handle, and Jared was no exception to the rule, but even with nine of them, it felt like there was no way he would have ever lost track of him long enough for anything to happen. With every step, he tried to maintain his focus on the matter at hand. The pain, the anger, the resentment, the regret. It had no use here in the woods. He would find Jared, and then never, ever let anyone or anything take him out of his grasp again. As they continued on the trail, there was a strange tension Alan couldn't ignore. And now that his family was here seeing it too, validating that he wasn't crazy, it felt even heavier. No doubt everyone helping was stressed and exhausted, but all of his interactions with the sheriff's office ended up making him feel as if he was some sort of annoyance, rather than a father desperate to find his missing toddler. The sergeant had even told Alan that all this pushing to get on the trail, the fuss they made, the bigger attraction of the media's presence they brought with them, it was all really causing a lot of problems for them. Alan didn't even know how to entertain that issue. Was he supposed to be sorry? He was ready to go to the ends of the earth to find Jared. As far as he could tell, the sheriff's office wasn't doing all that they could. The sergeant in charge of the search actually relinquished his duties that day, and by Tuesday afternoon, a new sergeant met with the family to give them details about what to expect next. As they sat in the trailer set up in the headquarters, he told them that if they didn't find Jared by Thursday, 48 hours from now, they'd send 30 more searchers up on the trail. Everything Alan had been bottling in finally bubbled over. He slammed his fist on the desk, 
What do you mean you're going to wait another two days? My son is missing. You should have brought them in days ago. You haven't found my son, and you realize you need more people, but you're going to wait. Why? Let's face it, in two more days, you'll be looking for a body. <sighs> Alan took a moment to regain his composure. He had more to say, but he didn't want to scream his point across. He told him about the woman he'd heard offering her search dog and skills for free being turned away, or other hikers offering to help search. But the sergeant assured Alan that they knew what they were doing, that he wouldn't change a thing if he had to do it all over again. Alan stormed out of the trailer, unable to process the gap of understanding between this man and himself. Before he left the trail, he made it a point to apologize to the sergeant for losing his cool, but he was looking at this through the eyes of a father, not some bystander. The sergeant disclosed that he himself didn't have any children, and in that moment, Alan decided to cut him some slack. No wonder he could say something so outrageous. He didn't know the love of a parent, the need to protect something so much, the emptiness of their absence like you've lost a limb. Alan was emotionally wrung out. Daylight was, once again, crawling away. He had an interview with Good Morning America the next day. Susan, Angie, and Jocelyn would be heading off the mountain. He was happy that maybe his daughter could find some semblance of normalcy, but he couldn't remember the last time he'd slept without both of his children. He returned to the resort with the rest of his family members, soaking in the nostalgia their presence gave him. It was a slight comfort. The first one in days. By the time Alan settled in for some sleep, it was after midnight. He set his alarm for Good Morning America, 2 a.m., which would be more sleep than he'd been averaging anyway. It came quickly, and he felt sluggish when he woke up, but he tried to be grateful that he'd slept at all. He and Arlen got themselves ready for TV, and then began the long, slow drive down the mountain to the sheriff's department. Susan, Angie, and Jocelyn soon arrived as well, and as he held his daughter, Alan felt a second wind of hope and energy wash over him. She was holding it together so well, or possibly holding it in, he worried. There was a part of him that feared that he would physically lose one child, and psychologically lose another. Growing up not only with siblings, but with a twin brother, he couldn't even begin to imagine what she was experiencing. Alan was mic'd up along with the sheriff, who did most of the talking. He explained that they'd ruled out foul play and abduction. There's only one way in and out of the trail, and he would have been seen by somebody. But by now, Alan had checked the topological information on the trails in the area, and knew for sure that there was more than one way to exit the Big South Trail. Not only that, but there were different ways to get around it, and besides the trail itself, who's to stop someone from haphazardly making their way out of the woods? But Alan told himself that he was sure if they had leads, they'd want to hold those cards close to their chest. After the interview, they had breakfast and headed over to Colorado State University, where Alan's nephew Todd was studying. These weren't the best circumstances for a family get-together, but this was when everybody needed each other the most. They would watch the segment air on Good Morning America in his dorm room. And even though it was difficult, it felt comforting to have Jared's face shared with the entire nation. When they returned to the resort, Alan stayed back for a moment by himself, letting the crisp, cold air fill his lungs. That's when it hit him that today was Wednesday, the fourth day without Jared. The ground might as well have split up in two and swallowed him whole. The up and down of emotions was almost too much. Where he just felt slightly optimistic, waves of hopelessness crashed over him. Alan began to cry at the surreal feeling of it all, barely able to breathe, devastated and wondering if he'd ever see his son again. He made his way back inside to find his family, where the collective hope kept him feeling alive. By that afternoon, Alan's father would also arrive at the resort, and they once again made their way to the trailhead to show him the area where Jared was last seen. 
The sheriff would be holding another press conference that afternoon, and on the way, Alan mentally prepared himself for more media interviews. His father was shocked when he arrived and saw the media, the Air Force, search and rescue members, deputies, and even a food trailer from the Salvation Army. The area was marked off with crime scene tape to keep everyone out. Alan grabbed a hot dog and a hot chocolate from the food trailer. He hadn't eaten since early morning. In the last few days, he'd had maybe enough bites of food to amount to a full meal. He hadn't thought about it, how important it was to feed all of these people helping. He was so grateful that the Salvation Army had taken the initiative. The web of helpers is so wide and layered. There were so many people contributing to the rescue mission without even being anywhere on the trail. During the press conference, the sheriff announced that a tracker had found tracks of what would appear to be a child's that eventually intersected with what seemed to be those of a mountain lion. But before the media had started, the tracker had told Alan that the sheriff hadn't even bothered to listen to his entire story. He'd tracked those prints for miles, and there was no sign of any attack. No blood, no clothes, no dragging marks or sign of any struggle. He was sure that if it had been a mountain lion, it hadn't come across Jared. When he was asked how he felt about the news, Alan explained exactly what the tracker had told him, even if it contradicted the theory the sheriff had just handed over. He answered a few more questions, and with that it was done. I hope you're right about that mountain lion, the sheriff said to him. The sheriff would call the Department of Wildlife to see if they could have someone come and look into the tracks. And before Alan left, a media representative for the Today Show asked him if he'd do an interview in the morning. But Alan was so exhausted, and there was no way he could make the long drive again when he was already running on zero sleep. And the hits just kept on coming. While they waited for the Department of Wildlife to arrive with mountain lion search dogs, the sergeant in charge of the search and rescue mission explained to Alan that they'd been utilizing many search dogs throughout the mission. The first two nights, they search after they're given the scent of a human they're trying to find, and after that, they let the dogs loose just to find anyone without a specific scent. That's when one of the search and rescue members picked up a Ziploc bag of clothing and handed it to Alan. Indeed, inside were a pair of shorts, and a pair that Alan recognized right away, but for all the wrong reasons. He pulled them out of the bag, displaying them for everyone. They were his shorts, a full-grown adult man. They'd been tracking Jared off the wrong scent the entire time, and nobody had noticed that the clothing was unreasonably big for a three-year-old boy. He had more clothing of Jared's in the blazer at the resort they could use, but he was full of a frustration that was hard to put into words. If it wasn't about to make him cry, he would have laughed. Everything you could imagine going wrong was going wrong, and then some. He hoped he would get to tell his son all these stories one day. That crazy time we searched the mountains for you. Before they left the trail, the media rep had offered for him to spend the night at a hotel, and Alan agreed. Especially now, more than ever, he felt a burden to do whatever he could for his son. He wouldn't let him down the way he felt the entire search was letting him down. He was grateful for every single person on the trail looking for Jared, but every misdetail or little mistake could cost him his son's life. A friend who'd stayed back from the Christian retreat drove them both down the mountain. For safety and company, Alan wouldn't be alone. It wasn't until then did Alan realize that a bunch of people were watching and worrying about him the way he was over Jared. The pain and exhaustion was all over his face. It felt like he'd aged a decade in less than a week. He quietly cried himself to sleep, forced to wake up to a fifth day without his son, five days without Jared. It might as well have been a thousand years. By Thursday, Jared's name was in headlines everywhere they looked. It was surreal and strange the simultaneous tug of war with hope and despair. On one hand, Alan knew how crucial it was to get his face out there, but on the other, there was a part of him holding fast to the idea that this would all blow over, that everybody was just making a big deal out of something that would soon be a speck in the past, a crazy story to tell on Jared's graduation and his wedding day. Alan refused to let those daydreams go. 
instead clinging to them more than ever, determined to believe that if he could still imagine Jared, then he would eventually have Jared again. By 4am, Alan and his friend Kimberly were in the lobby waiting for their ride, and after the segment, Alan agreed to stay around to film two more interviews for the Later Today Show and the Ted Koppel Show. All of this was bittersweet. Only he could be the pleading father on television, there was no stand-in for that, but it also meant he wouldn't be back up on the trail until the afternoon. By the time they returned to the hotel to grab their things and leave, that day's papers had made it to the stands. There, right in the center of the front page, was his sister-in-law, Robin, sitting on the ground with tears streaming down her face. Her agony was like a punch to his gut, and when Robin saw the newspaper, it felt so uncomfortable to have her private grief out there for all to see that she would remain guarded around the media from that point on. They had seen similar headlines and images of strangers thousands of times before, plots that had played out like distant movies, but now it was happening to them, and the entire Adadero family was coping with this new spotlight as best they could. Alan made it a habit to buy every single paper he came across. He wanted to see what people were saying, if they were getting the facts right, and sometimes he'd come across information that he was discovering for the first time, like an employee at the sheriff's department mentioning that the only area where their search coverage may be weak was a trailhead at Peterson Lake. Not only did any mention of weak coverage infuriate Alan, but this meant that the entire assurance Alan had been given about there being only one way in and one way out of the Big South Trail had been false. The lower end of the Corral Creek Trailhead and Peterson Lake can be accessed via the Big South Trail and the direction in which Jared had been headed that day. You can park at Peterson Lake, and along the several miles between these areas, there's plenty of campsites. There hadn't been a single day that had passed during this search where Alan wasn't delivered news that felt like Jenga pieces collapsing the chance of finding his son. Once again, he pulled himself together and prepared for another press conference at the Big South Trailhead. He was a man of faith, by every sense of the word, and there was still a huge part of him that hoped he'd return to good news, to anything. But when he arrived, Arlen was there, and angry. He told Alan that the people in charge of the entire operation were treating him more like a criminal who didn't deserve to know anything, than a worried uncle desperate to find his missing nephew. And with that, Alan was fed up. He could take the blows of disappointment, the disrespect, the lack of acknowledgement, but what he couldn't tolerate was watching anyone hurt his family. They were hurting enough. Alan lost it for a minute on the head deputy. No more would his grieving be mistaken for some kind of weakness. But in his peripherals, he could tell the cameras were gearing up to catch what they could of this vulnerability and turn it into drama. So Alan said his piece and left it at that. Honestly, he felt exhausted with the media too. He couldn't give them what they wanted anymore. He wasn't here for a show. The night before, a reporter had wrapped up Jared's story with, Up next, the Broncos are zero and four. A bitter pill to swallow. It wasn't in Alan's nature to be selfish, but in those moments when he realized his pain was a sensational story that would soon become too boring to report on, he wished he could make the whole world stop with him. It just felt impossibly unfair how his own flesh and blood has disappeared and life could somehow still go on. After the press conference, the deputy in charge approached Alan. He made small talk at first, but Alan could tell there was something he was skirting around. Finally, he told him that there was a meeting planned at the sheriff's office in the morning to decide the direction of the search. Alan knew what that meant. They were thinking of calling it off. Even if they didn't, he was aware that the military were planning to retrieve the crashed helicopter any day now, which could take anywhere up to a whole week, and during that time, the search for Jared would be paused. He could already tell from the deputy's voice, the way in which he said it, that the mission was over, and the time he never wanted to face was here to confront him, and he couldn't avoid it. 
Alan would be leaving the mountain without his son. The morning of Friday, October 8th, was one that wouldn't just stay ingrained in Alan's memory, but now, most of his immediate family members as well. They'd come to be with Alan once Jared had been rescued, thinking that he would have most likely been found by the time they arrived on the mountain. But now, they were all leaving without him. Before their drive back to Littleton, they'd been asked to stop by the sheriff's office around 11 a.m. They'd have a chance to meet everyone at the office who'd been involved in the search and go over their remaining options. As far as Alan was concerned, he didn't really see many remaining options. The people in charge had decided that not even after a full week, it was time to call it quits. After waiting a while in the conference room, four people walked in to speak with them. Captain Newhard, the main investigator, the victim's advocate, and a member of the search and rescue that Alan had never met before. As appreciative as he was for this meeting, he'd been hoping that someone who'd been involved with the actual search would have been there, because most of the questions they had, only a person who'd been on the trail could answer. And where were the deputies who'd made it their priority to keep his family separate from the search and off the trail? Throughout all the major and minor frustrations and letdowns, Alan had mostly bit his tongue and trusted that the people in power would eventually have explanations and good reasons for what they did. But unfortunately, the meeting felt more like an apology than anything else. Alan hadn't hoped for much, but even that was quashed. Captain Newhart came across as deeply sincere, even having to leave the room at one point after he began to cry. This hadn't just been some failed mission. Alan could tell that regardless of some of the interactions he'd experienced over the last six days, there were people involved in this that were truly invested, full of integrity and empathy. And as Alan shook hands and hugged this man whose eyes were welling up with tears, he felt gratitude for the tiny moments of humanity that seemed so big. It was fragments like this that he would go on to cherish forever. Any other time, Alan would have been wishing the drive home to fly by. Usually their time on the mountain was wrapped up in a cozy end of falling asleep in their own beds, driving back into their regular routines once again. But the time to walk through his apartment door came too quickly, and entering a place covered with Jared everywhere he looked gutted him all over again. There were Jared's toys on the living room floor, his soldiers and battleships by the tub from his last bath, his clean clothes in a laundry basket, still needing to be folded. He folded the clothes, and cried, and folded. This would be the start of so many actions that didn't make sense. Or maybe they did, but only to those who could see them through the distinct lens of grief. His answering machine was full. Voicemails from family members, neighbors, co-workers, reporters. Alan had no idea what his new normal would look like. But the start was overwhelming. Two of Alan's cousins had made their way into town as well, totaling nine people in his two-bedroom apartment, and it was bittersweet. He didn't want to be alone, but at the same time, being around people was suffocating him. Since Jared had gone missing, so much of his energy had been spent holding it together for appearances and staying strong for everyone around him. As a father, as a man, he felt a responsibility to maintain emotional stability, to provide a sense of calm for his daughter, his mother, even Jared, wherever he was. But beyond a few minutes to cry himself to sleep or hide away in the bathroom, he'd had no time at all just to breathe. So he did something he hadn't done since before he was a father. He went for a drive alone. Not for long, but just long enough to let his thoughts escape him ever so slightly. Just long enough to grasp one fleeting moment where it felt like nothing was chasing him anymore. No matter how much time seemed to pass, there was always a part of Alan that stayed stuck on the mountain. He had experienced loss in his life before, but nothing like this. There was this inescapable sadness that was always present somewhere within him, in everything he did, in every place he went. 
Every single thing either reminded him of something about Jared or taunted him with new memories his son was absent for, movies he would have loved, foods he hadn't tried yet, birthdays and holidays without him that were never as joyful as they used to be. And grief is a hidden fire burning where nobody else can see. People expected Alan to move on, so he would appear as if he was okay, but he was never really okay, because his life and Jocelyn's life had changed forever since that day. All of the investigators and reporters, onlookers, and even some other family members had the luxury to move on in a way that Alan couldn't, where they might find closure in assuming whatever scenario in their heads. Alan was left with loose ends and questions too important to ignore. Some of his family members even thought they should hold a vigil for Jared, but Alan refused. Until he knew anything for certain, he believed Jared was alive, and he would never want his son to see that, to think that everyone assumed he was dead and forgotten. It wasn't that Alan couldn't give credit to the outcomes, it was that there wasn't enough proof of any of them being real for him to give up on believing that someday he would be reunited with his son once again. Between the normal duties of life, Alan advocated for Jared in any way that he could. He attempted to get the FBI involved, but because there was no proof of foul play, it wasn't something the FBI would consider investigating. The Adadero family would also continue to search the Big South Trail themselves, long after the official search had ended a few days after they left the area. And about nine months after Jared's disappearance, a rescue patrol volunteered to go up the mountain with them and conduct a thorough search of the area. The rescue got permission from the sheriff's office, and the entire family planned to spend a whole Saturday together covering as much ground as they could. But as the weekend got closer, the lead of the rescue was contacted by the sheriff's office and told if they went on the trail, they would be arrested for trespassing. They weren't about to listen, though. It was a public area, and as far as anyone knew, the entire group blended in with all the other hikers on the trail that day. They didn't come across any clues connected to Jared, but there had been a strange anxiety in the air, as if they were doing something wrong. But if the trail was a crime scene, the FBI would have gotten involved. Alan even heard that other rescue teams had offered their services since and been turned down. He just didn't understand the politics of it all, and he didn't care to understand. He wasn't interested in anything except rescuing his son. Sometime soon after, a friend of Alan's named Kelly told him that she'd spoken with two officers from the National Guard, and that they were willing to take their troops up to the mountain to look for Jared. Alan was overjoyed at this new opportunity, but when he told the sergeant at the sheriff's office, he was met with hesitance, and eventually the answer would be no because it would cost anywhere from three to $6,000 a day, and the county just couldn't utilize something so expensive. The cost of a rescue mission varies depending on the circumstances. Who foots the bill depends on what agencies are utilized. To say it was an unprofessional approach would be putting it lightly. Regardless of what the prices were, that wouldn't be something the victim or family should be concerned with. Most services, like park searches and the National Guard, are funded by taxpayers. There's different ways of having the National Guard activated, and in Colorado, depending on how, the services are either paid by the state or federal government. Beyond the financial politics, it's unclear how actually real this offer of the National Guard's assistance even was. In time, Alan will learn that Kelly was an opportunist, a con artist, a liar, and manipulator. She reached out to Alan after hearing his story, and explained that she could relate so deeply to his pain because she'd been abducted as a child herself, and she was still searching for her parents. She was a criminal profiler, and had skills she was willing to bring to the table out of the goodness of her heart. And when it came to Kelly, everything was always major, life-changing and dramatic. She would string Alan along by telling him that she had contacts with the National Guard, she knew people in the FBI, she had information on Jared, but for his own safety, she couldn't tell him. Once Alan became so frustrated with the idea that she knew something and wouldn't share, she finally confessed. She had evidence proving Jared had been abducted, and he was living in a child labor camp in Mexico. 
She had plans to fly down with a camera team to document it, to rescue him and bust the whole operation wide open. She claimed to have networks with a satellite company who had photographs of Jared, top secret, of course, so even Alan couldn't take a peek. When that didn't take, she changed her story during a sobbing phone call in the middle of the night. A woman had called her confessing to kidnapping Jared, and she was ready to return him. Eventually, this culminated in Alan contacting the sheriff's office and asking her if she'd take a polygraph test because he just didn't believe her story. Instead of backing down, Kelly was thrilled at the idea to prove herself. According to Alan, Kelly would be charged with a felony, but eventually plea bargained to a lesser crime and was given probation, instructed to never contact the Adaderos, and hopefully never prey on another vulnerable family ever again. And as for all the contacts, theories, proof, and answers she had about Jared, once Kelly disappeared, they disappeared with her. By the time the one-year mark was nearing, Alan was well into the mission of continuing the search for Jared on his own. He understood that even just the idea of getting his son's case re-examined by other professionals would be a challenge. Not only was there no signs of foul play or evidence to provide, he'd be hard-pressed to find someone that would say the sheriff's office hadn't fulfilled their every duty. And Alan wasn't on a mission against the sheriff's office. He was grateful for what they provided. He just refused to believe that what they'd done was all that could be done. The heaviness of the anniversary loomed over him. What's known as anniversary reactions or an increase in distress and other symptoms are extremely common in trauma survivors around this time. Alan got a call from Susan, the victim's advocate from the sheriff's department, about three weeks before. She'd left her position and was working as a director of business development for a funeral home in Fort Collins, and she wanted to have a service of remembrance for Jared. Alan was both grateful but also hesitant to do something like that in a funeral home, but Susan assured him that it would be a great opportunity to get Jared's face reintroduced to the public again. Alan agreed, and on the Friday of the anniversary weekend, he attended the service. It was just as difficult as he thought it would be, being in a place where people pay their respects to the dead, to not think of his son that way. But he appreciated it, even teared up when he saw a sign that Susan had made, calling it a service of hope and healing. Anniversaries would continue to pass, and each time, Alan would dream of campfire and pine, echoes in a black, never-ending forest. He would hear Jared's laugh, his footsteps rustling the leaves and rocks, but wake all too soon. His day-to-day -day life included thumbing through police notes and researching animal attacks, continuing to keep Jared's name and face active, as well as advocating for different causes that gave his pain a sense of purpose. He would even find his way to the state capitol, after being asked to show support to establish an emergency alert system in Colorado regarding the abduction of children. The America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response, also known as Amber Alert, first launched in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in October of 1996. As of today, the Amber Alert is used in all 50 states, as well as 33 other countries and counting. The alert is named after Amber Renee Hagerman, a 10-year-old girl who was abducted while riding her bike in Arlington, Texas in 1996. Four days later, her remains were found less than five miles from the parking lot she'd last been seen in. A neighbor had witnessed the man who took Amber and called 911. The original idea was inspired by a mother in Texas named Diana Simone, who'd been following Amber's story. She called into a local radio station, suggesting an emergency system where stations could pause their programming and immediately share the news after a call like that. Had the media been able to share that Amber was inside of a black Ford pickup truck, her story may have ended differently. On April 1st, 2002, Jocelyn would sit next to the governor as he signed the Amber Alert into law. Alan would be able to speak to the media about Amber, about Jared, and about his hopes of all the future parents that would be saved the kind of pain he'd felt having a missing child. It also happened to be his birthday, 
And as he rested his head on his pillow that night, he felt a fullness in him he hadn't felt in years. He thanked God, and he thanked Jared. A tear streamed down his face. He would sleep the night through. It had been a good day. On the afternoon of Friday, June 6, 2003, Alan was with his friend browsing in a furniture warehouse when his phone rang. When he saw the caller ID, his heart fell through the floor. It was the sheriff. And he had news for Alan. Two hikers had discovered some clothing that he was sure belonged to Jared. He was wondering if he'd drive to the office to identify them. The journey would take over two hours. Alan didn't want to wait that long. So he asked if the sheriff could email him some photos in the meantime while he arranged to take time off work. He didn't want to just see the clothing. He wanted to go directly to the place on the trail where everything was found. Alan's knees nearly buckled as he finished the call, and he sat heavy, almost half-falling into one of the couches displayed on the sales floor. So many questions were racing through his head. The sheriff said that the two men who'd been hiking found Jared's shoes, pants, and jacket. Where was Jared's body? Why had nothing like this been found during the search before? Where did they find his clothes, and why was it only those three random items? Alan's friend understood why he needed to leave and get home to his computer immediately. And sure enough, when he opened his email attachments, there they were. Jared's blue pants, his tan jacket, and his tennis shoe. Alan reached out and touched the screen instinctively, almost as if he could reach out and grab them. He sobbed, both out of relief and out of sorrow. He'd finally gotten a sign of Jared, but it felt like it meant the worst was true, and that all hope of ever seeing his son alive was slipping through his fingers. He called the sheriff to confirm that the clothing was Jared's, and was told they'd sent a search and rescue team up to the area, but no more clothing or any signs of Jared had been recovered. He would need to hold a press release and share this information with the media as soon as possible, but he also wanted to be respectful of Alan, so he put it off until Monday, giving Alan the weekend to process the news and tell his family. Alan got off the phone and stared at the photos. The blue pants were tattered and frayed, and a good chunk of one of the legs was missing. The sheriff had explained that the area was covered with tiny blue tufts of material. Animals obviously had used it for nesting. But besides that, the clothes themselves were in good shape. There were no obvious rips or tears from an attack, no bloodstains he could see. And when Alan took a closer look at the picture of the pants, he noticed that they were also inside out. That bothered him. A lot. Every new piece of information posing as an answer only led him to more questions. The two hikers who had discovered the clothing, Ron Osborne and Gareth Watts, gave statements to the police. The files would refer to them as Hiker 1 and Hiker 2, and both stories were mostly similar. Hiker 1 would state that on June 4th, they went hiking on the Big South Trail together. They were aware of Jared's disappearance in 1999, having hiked the trail three times prior to that event, and had often talked about it. During their hike, they deviated off of the main trail, and within 20 minutes of their climb, his hiking partner called out to him that he'd found something. He came over to see a jacket and pants, within about 30 feet of a shoe. They took photographs before putting them in a bag and bringing them to the sheriff's office the next day at 1pm. Hiker 2's statement mirrors the first, except Hiker 2 said that they found a second tennis shoe, but only begged one to retrieve. They looked for signs of anything else and found nothing. When it began to rain, they made their way back to the trailhead and drove home. They went to sleep, woke up, went to work, and after work, drove to the sheriff's office to give them the clothing. The two statements confused Alan. He didn't understand why, if they'd found two shoes, they'd only bagged one of them. And Hiker 1 had mentioned the word shirt, but Alan wasn't sure if he was mistakenly referring to the jacket. He wasn't trying to point fingers or be ungrateful. 
but he couldn't understand how, having grasped the gravity of the case and knowing how important it was, why the two men would decide to take the evidence and then take their time. If Alan had something important in his possession regarding the case of a missing child, he'd be going straight to the authorities with it first. Alan would make his way to the sheriff's office on Tuesday, blasting Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd as the miles drew nearer to the mountain. On any given day, a certain lyric would hit him right in the gut, perfectly explaining the state of his life, the lines blurred between heaven and hell. The clothing articles would be protected by plastic bags, pinned to a display board, out of the eager reach of Alan's fingertips. He noticed the pants had been pulled right side out, but when he brought this up to the sheriff, it was dismissed. Everyone claimed they had no idea what he was talking about. But Alan could clearly see in the photograph that the pants had been discovered inside out, and Jared's shoes appeared just as the day he'd last seen his son wearing them. The white laces and sneakers were clean. There were no drag or scuff marks on them. They didn't appear to be weathered at all. All of the clothing was intact in a way that surprised Alan, given how much time had passed out in the elements. The clothing, of course, would be sent for testing, which would take time. And once again, the hysteria of opinions and theories would play out on television. During the press conference, the sheriff had mentioned that more than one hair had been found on the jacket, and this information might become critical. But Alan had told the sheriff that he could find at least two hairs on the jacket for sure, because it had belonged to Jocelyn first. People spoke of abduction and evidence planting, of animal attacks, how possible and impossible they were. Every specialist contradicted the last, and Alan felt dizzy in a vortex of information. He would be at the site next weekend himself, hoping and believing that once he was there, Jared would find a way to tell him exactly what he needed to know. Just a week later, on the 14th, Alan was finally able to go on the trail. He was joined by 10 supporters, including his father, friends, and connections he'd made from the Child Recovery Network, a mix of people who had experienced similar tragedies firsthand and experts in finding missing children. He had so many questions, but also a massive urge to just be where Jared's clothing had been found. It was strange, but he anticipated that he would feel something, that maybe he would know whether Jared was still alive or not. Alan was a man of faith, of fate and synchronicities. There had been many times over the last three and a half years that he'd felt something bigger sending him signs, leading him along the path to get to this point right here. Maybe it was Jared, like an angel, guiding him to find closure. Or maybe it was God, reminding him to stay strong and keep the faith because his son was still waiting to be found. The drive to the canyon felt different this time. Sad, but also hopeful. It was a Saturday morning, as the light began to beam over the horizon. There hadn't been a single Saturday morning since Jared's disappearance that Alan hadn't thought of it. This one felt especially significant. There hadn't been anything else found since the discovery by the hikers, but the talk of finding remains on the mountain was all Alan saw on every news outlet. But Alan refused to sway just because of the clothing. Until he had proof that Jared wasn't alive, he would always continue to search for his son as if he was. Everyone would be escorted by a female deputy who'd been helping with the search on the trail. It would take about 45 minutes to get to the discovery site, and the entire time Alan couldn't stop thinking about how tough the terrain was. His father stayed back because it was too difficult for him. There was just no way he could picture Jared capable of climbing it either. When they arrived, Alan was overcome with grief and sat down on a rock, blue specks of Jared's pants scattered among the ground around him. Tiny flags marked the spots where his clothing had been found. He couldn't stop thinking about all the horrible things that could have happened. 
But only minutes after sitting down, Alan could hear someone frantic over the radio. Twenty yards away, another group of people had just found something. When they arrived at the area, one of the searchers pointed to a log, and there, resting right on top, was a tooth. And just below the log was the top of a small skull, upside down like a bowl full of pine needles and twigs. He was given permission to pick up the tooth and he held it in a fist to his chest, crying silently, trying not to break down completely, even though his greatest fears were just confirmed in a split second. The two hikers who had originally discovered the clothing had said they'd looked all over the area for more, but somehow missed this. Granted, it was tiny, maybe blended into its dwellings if you weren't looking for it, but they had been, and this was only 60 feet or so away. The search team that had been up here a week now had missed this, and the original team in 1999 must have covered this ground a few times at least. Nothing about the scene made sense to Alan, and where everyone else seemed to feel closure, he only felt more confusion. Being a man of symbolism, Alan was willing to believe that maybe Jared was just waiting for his arrival before finally being found, knowing that he needed to be here for it. Or had someone else waited for Alan to arrive before this convenient discovery? Alan also ran through the scenarios of animals, thunderstorms, flash floods. If only parts of his clothing, a part of the skullcap, and one tooth were here on the mountain, then surely there must be more. He couldn't stop analyzing every little thing because he wanted to know what happened so badly. Alan would return to the bottom of the mountain, telling his own father, We found him. He broke down. Alan cried with him, explaining the horrific details of what had been up there. Hearing the words come out of his own mouth made it real. Jared was gone forever. And the following Sunday, Alan would experience his fourth Father's Day without him. But he would continue to thank God for the gift he had in his life to be the father of two perfect children. He was Jocelyn's father. And no matter what, he would always be Jared's father too. Just because there were no bloodstains to the naked eye didn't mean the blood wasn't there. The reddish-brown of dried stains eventually disappears to gray when it's exposed to the elements, but after thorough testing, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation concluded that there were no traces of blood, and this was most likely due to it having been washed out over time. But Allen didn't believe that there was ever blood on the clothing to begin with. The original DNA results themselves weren't 100%. At first, the cranium was only able to provide a partial DNA profile. However, the profile did match that of a male who would be offspring of both Angie and Allen, 88.6% of a match. The original testing of the tooth gave two different individual DNA results, neither of which could be determined. For many people who see the photograph of how the tooth was discovered, not only does it appear possibly too big for a three-year-old, but it seems clean and placed neatly, versus the cranium that had scratches, some dirt, and was worn and weathered. Alan knew that there were plenty of people who may have stopped here, but he wasn't satisfied with the results. Without 100%, there was still any chance of percentage that Jared was alive. He would need to know for sure and contacted as many DNA testing specialists that he could. Unfortunately, the tooth was destroyed during testing and any chance of getting more answers from it were gone. But finally, on January 22, 2014, Alan received confirmation that the cranium, without a doubt, belonged to Jared. Over and over, Alan lost his son. The day he went missing, the day they found his clothing, the day they discovered his remains, and every single time that they were confirmed to be his. Just when he thought he'd reached the deepest thresholds of pain that he could, Alan's ability to feel a sadness beyond words would expand again and again. Every time Jared died, a part of Alan died with him. 
In 2015, Allen received the official report that had been written by the NecroSearch team in July 2003, about a month after the remains were discovered. The report was filled with contradictions. It states, The failure to locate any other remains leaves several questions open, most notably the location of the primary scavenging and decomposition site, and continues to explain that the best guess for the assumption would be where the clothing was found. However, then it states, the reported absence of any stains that might have come from either blood or decomposition fluids indicates that they were removed from or by the victim prior to the time that any significant bleeding or decomposition took place. But Alan refused to believe that the clothing site was the place where anything happened. He'd barely made it up there himself. There was no way that Jared could have gotten that far. Lastly, the report said there was nothing to reject the idea that Jared was taken by a large carnivore, most likely a mountain lion, that he very well could have been attacked and taken away from the hikers, which contradicted the idea that there was no kill site or any area that indicated an attack. And this confused Alan, given the prior statement about Jared's clothing being removed. To Alan, it sounded just as ridiculous as when the Division of Wildlife Experts told him that clearly the shirt could have been devoured along with the body, which would mean that either Jared or the animal removed his jacket, shoes, and pants before the attack. Alan entertained every theory he could. He didn't shy away from the gruesome thoughts of how his son could have died. But no matter what theory he examined to the core, eventually he would always come to a point where it still didn't make sense. Eventually you still come to the same confusing conclusion, one where the ends are still frayed. And as a father, until you have that 100% answer to fill in the blank, it remains empty. As time went on, Alan observed that most people fell divided into different theories, and eventually, there were a few that were so repeated they became the top five. That he fell asleep and died of hypothermia, that he slipped into a river and drowned downstream, that he ran off, broke a bone, and eventually died, that he was killed by a mountain lion or other animal, or that he was abducted by someone on the trail and the pieces of evidence were either planted or dumped there later. Alan reached out to mountain lion experts and time after time was told that an animal attack didn't seem plausible. Even though the population of mountain lions in Colorado ranges somewhere between 3 to 7,000, sightings are rare because they're nocturnal. Unlike other big cats, they prefer to do their hunting from dusk until dawn. The possibility of one stalking and hunting Jared so close to such a large group of humans on a busy Saturday morning is almost non-existent. In an area like the Big South Trail, they'd have their pick of deer, coyotes, raccoons, etc. Jared slipping out of sight just in time to come across a starving mountain lion, or the rare scenario of him getting between a mother and her young, doesn't seem likely. After the lions kill their prey, they drag them to another area to bury it in the ground, or cover it with leaves and pine needles to hide it from other animals and keep it fresh, which implies some sort of indication of an attack site. There were also no mountain lion hairs found anywhere on Jared's clothing. Alan will learn from a few different people that shortly after Jared went missing, they thought they heard a child scream, but nobody could explain what kind of scream exactly, and nobody thought it was the type of scream to even set off alarm bells and investigate. Regular campers, fishermen, and hikers from the area reported a couple bear sightings that year, but nobody had seen any mountain lions. And even when the remains are discovered years later, there were no deep marks to imply that the skull had been bitten or chewed at by wildlife. Alan could never forget how many people had been so sure that Janet and Jocelyn had still been up on the trail, or that there was only one way in and out, when both of those things had been wrong. He couldn't forget the mixture of DNA from the tooth results, the impeccable state that the clothing and shoes were found in, on grounds that had been covered dozens and dozens of times before. 
how from the start, even those in power had made the entire trail feel like a crime scene, yet also saying that no crime had been committed. Alan would spend years receiving letters from people who had apparently been turned away after volunteering their skills for free to the sheriff's department. These letters were the worst salt in the wound for him. And there is no one single person to blame. From distracted adults in a single fleeting moment, to mistakes and misdetails during a search, to battles of the ego and divisions of power, one thing was true. There would never be a way to go back from the beginning and start over fresh in Jared's case. Now, there are even less pieces and only more spaces to fill. To this day, the whole Adadero family finds unrest in the mountain lion theory, the drowning theory, the hypothermia and quiet death in the night theories, the idea that Jared was just lost or devoured without a trace. It never quite settles the dust, because they all still lead to crucial whys and hows that may never be answered unless somebody who knows something is willing to face the questions. Just four months after the search for Jared, Alan would devote time to tell Jared's story on behalf of the Jared Adadero Whistle Project, an effort implemented on behalf of the search and rescue team. At the end of a presentation about the importance of wilderness safety and what to do when you get lost, each child was handed a whistle with Jared's name on it. If Jared had been in possession of something like that, maybe it would have changed everything. Like so many families who experienced the tragedy of losing a loved one, Alan was determined to not let the loss of his child feel like it was for nothing at all. As much of his pain that could be made useful was about the only thing that managed to temporarily subside the relentless need to keep doing something, anything, that felt like it was bringing him closer to Jared in any way. In March of 2000, Jared's bill was introduced to Congress, and by that October, Section 2 of the Big South Trail was named the Jared Adadero Legacy Trail. But the memories go so much deeper than signposts. For Alan, the loss of his son has woven its way into his DNA into the very essence of who he is and how he sees the world. During an interview, Alan described Jared like having a pebble in your shoe. You know it's there. Every time you take a step, you feel it. You can't do anything about it, but it's not enough to stop you from doing what you need to do every day. That's Jared. He's my little pebble. Alan would use a myriad of ways to process his grief over the years, including writing poetry and letters to Jared. He took all his sorrow and rage too heavy and dark for anyone else to carry and let it bleed out of him into salt water and ink. Jared, what would I give to have you sitting on my lap and holding my hand? What would I do to see your smiling face and hear your wonderful voice? If I could only bring you back, we could play catch. You could jump on my back. If I could have one more day, I would look into your big brown eyes and cry with you. I would do anything to see you and your sister laughing and playing together. If I could see you, I'd let you suck your thumb. If you come home, I'll let you jump on the bed and write on the walls. I told you, if you ever died, I'd die with you. I have. 